Welcome to the CondoVultures.com podcast with your host, Peter Zalewski, a Miami real estate broker, Wall Street consultant, and expert witness. This podcast is focused on identifying real estate buying opportunities in the South Florida condo market, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. The CondoVultures.com podcast is not authorized by the South Florida real estate industry and will most likely annoy many of the region's talking heads. This podcast will feature straight talk and salty language that could be offensive to some. Please remember that part that past investment success does not determine future gains, especially in the South Florida's volatile condo market. For more information, please visit condovultures.com. Welcome to the Condo Vultures podcast. I'm Peter Zaluski. I'm the host. This is episode number 24 in our podcast series. For this particular uh, podcast, we have a guest interview. We are interviewing a gentleman named Howard Shapiro. Howard's name might sound familiar to you if you've uh, played in the South Florida real estate market for a while. Why? Because he's ultimately built close to 7,000 units, uh, mostly condos, some rentals, primarily in the South Florida area. Some of Howard's projects include everything from Sunset Harbor over in Miami Beach, which has a large marina, as well as the courts at South Beach. Howard's been involved with a number of uh, towers that were constructed going back to the 70s, from Sunny Isles Beach uh, all the way down uh, Collins Avenue to South Beach, and I think he's even done some in Broward County as well. For this particular conversation, Howard, uh, who happens to be an expert witness, and he also is uh, on the faculty over at the University of Miami, uh, we are going to talk about how profitable is a condo. How much money are developers making when they're successful on the condos? What are some of the risks? How things are changing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of design, sales, lifestyle um, uh, needs, necessities? Um, Howard's got some fantastic insight. He walks you through. He helps you understand exactly what a condo developer is thinking. Why is that important? Well, because if you're a buyer and you're going in to maybe uh, buy a unit from a developer, uh, you want to know sort of what the rules of engagement are. You want to know kind of what the where the wiggle room is. Obviously, every seller says there's no wiggle room. But if you have a better understanding of where that developer is coming from, you might be able to hit a sweet spot that's going to save you money and ultimately um, make it worthwhile for you. So I encourage you to check out the podcast. It's a little bit on the longer side. We're pushing an hour, 45 minutes. Um, we had to do some things for this particular podcast, so the sound quality might not be as great as uh, I would like, but, uh, but the content is overwhelming and it's fantastic. So uh, I want to mention to you before I, uh, you go on to the podcast, uh, if you have any comments, you have any suggestions, you have any criticisms, uh, you know, you name it, we want to hear about it. To reach out to us, send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. So fasten the seatbelt, sit back, and get ready to learn quite a bit about what it takes to be a developer in South Florida and how much you actually make when you build one of these condo towers. So I hope you enjoy it. Are you a primary user or real estate investor who's in the market for a discounted South Florida condo? Are you searching in the markets of greater downtown Miami, Miami Beach north to Sunny Isles Beach, Hollywood north to Fort Lauderdale, or anywhere else east of I-95 in the Tri-County South Florida region? If so, the buyer brokers at Condo Vultures Realty are here to assist you. Condo Vultures Realty is a licensed Florida brokerage that was established in 2006 to assist educated buyers in identifying, negotiating, and purchasing units at a discounted price. To speak with a buyer broker at Condo Vultures Realty, please call 305-865-5859 or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com.
Welcome to the Condo Vultures Podcast. I'm Peter Zalewski. I am your host. This is episode number 24 in our podcast series. I'm really looking forward to this podcast because I have on uh, joining us, and I, I'm sure you're going to love it, uh, audience. We have a, a gentleman who's been building for north of 40 years in the South Florida area. He's, he's currently an expert witness. Uh, he does some uh, instruction over at the uh, University of Miami. Uh, basically, he knows anything and everything there is about uh, real estate development, especially on the condo side in the South Florida region. And who is this gentleman? This is Howard Shapiro. Howard, are you out there? I am here, Peter, all the way. All right, Howard. Thank you, first and foremost, for joining us. And um, uh, I, I, how My are you pleasure. doing? How, 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 how are you holding up? I'm doing fine. Are, I'm getting a, little, getting a little cabin fever. But other than that, I think we're doing all right. All right. Now, 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 Howard, um, uh, what I want to do is I want to take about an hour of your time, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. Um, it's not like TV where you have to worry about, uh, you know, how much time you have. We can talk as long as we like. But um, so I'd like to use about right. an hour of your time. Absolutely. And, okay. And it, here's the way I want to approach it. I want to do three 20-minute segments. The first segment we're going to talk about you. The second segment, I'm going to ask you about the market. And then the third segment, I'm going to ask you to sort of prognosticate as to kind of what you see coming down the pipe. Does, does that work? Sure. Perfect. Perfect. And um, as, and one rule of engagement, just so you know, um, the audience loves straight talk, and we do permit salty language. So if you slip and you curse, don't worry, it's not a problem. Uh, everybody's an adult here, and I don't think they'll ever get a mind it. Is it. Does that work for you? That works perfectly well with me. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, and I know you're a developer, and developers are legendary for their, their, their foul mouths, although I think uh, I don't think I've ever right. heard you curse, so. <laughs> no, it all depends who we're talking to at the time, you know. If, <laughs> if, we're, talking to, if we're talking to our friendly bankers, then uh, – Sometimes the conversation can get a little bit heated, but uh, nice. generally we're under control, but uh, we're all very concerned about what's going on with COVID-19, obviously, and and yep. that's a big worry for everybody in the industry, including, no less, the banking institutions and uh, the, you know, the funds and other sources of capital, equity, as well as debt, and... Um, it's just something we're all living with at the moment. No one seems to have an answer as to when this is going to go away. Okay, Although okay, I Howard, I, 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 I want to stop you there. I want to stop you there. I want, I want people to know a little bit about you first before we sort of get into some okay, of that. Okay, sure. Because your, 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 your resume is amazing. So l l well, let me get I people to... Thank you for that. I um, was born and raised in Quebec City in Canada uh, and uh, – met my lovely wife in Montreal where we got married and uh, moved to Washington, D.C., uh, where there was a project that uh, that we took over, which was a rental project of some 1,500 units on the, on the, uh, on the D.C. line in uh, suburban Washington, D.C., and from there we moved down to South Florida, and that was in the early 70s. So we've been down in, in Florida since 1972. Raised my wow. kids here. I've got Two kids that uh, that I'm very proud of. One's a doctor. One's a teacher. Those are not as noble a profession as being a real estate developer, but it's still <laughs> it's very nice. It's it's very nice, and uh, I'm very as I said, I'm very proud of them. Uh, my my daughter, son-in-law, and two grandkids live in Israel, 
and my son is a doctor practicing internal medicine and cosmetic aesthetic medicine here in uh, on 41st Street in Miami Beach. So nice. uh, both, they were both brought up in we we've been living in the Hollywood for uh since uh, since the early 70s and um uh, kids went to Pinecrest uh, where they graduated before they went off to school. Jason went off to BU, got his medical degree from the Haifa University in Israel. And my daughter, Marnie, uh, became a teacher. She went to Michigan, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Yep. And uh, they are both uh, living their lives and enjoying South Florida. And uh, we love it down here. And I miss Montreal, but not enough to move back there. That's for sure. How, how often do you go up to Montreal? And, and, and tell us about smoked meat. Now, now, Howard, keep in mind, our audience uh, goes from Toronto to Buenos Aires, from Prague to Sydney. Right. So so right. they may not have heard of smoked meat. And uh, can you talk about right. that? Can you talk about Montreal? Absolutely. No, I, I love smoked meat. Actually, smoked meat is the Canadian equivalent to pastrami. So okay. when you go into a restaurant or a deli in particular in Montreal or Toronto, but particularly in Montreal, you would go to a deli and you'd have a smoked meat sandwich. And it's basically cured beef, which is delicious. And uh, there's also corned beef, which is also delicious, uh, which you can get. But it's it's similar to it's similar to pastrami. That's the best that I can describe it as being. And uh, there's another famous French-Canadian uh, condiment called uh, uh, the French fries with, with poutine. Which is a sauce with with uh, cheese curds on top, which is not my liking, but a lot of people love it, and that's yep. another native food which everybody digs into. If you're from Canada, there's a couple of places in Hollywood that serve it actually, and uh, let's see what else. Uh, I I went. To well, well, I want to. I want to ask you about that, Howard. Um, uh, if somebody's listening and, and all of them have an interest in some way in real estate, maybe they live here, maybe they own here, maybe they want to invest here. If they want to check out the smoked meat, where could they go in South Florida to get a uh, to get a sense of maybe what Montreal's like uh, without actually having to go up to Canada? I don't know that smoked meat is being served anywhere in South Florida. I don't know of a place that it is. Uh, but the pastrami at 2J's in the Dania Point, uh, development is is got they've got some very good the pastrami which I like a lot. Uh, okay. As close as I'm going to get to to smoked meat, but uh, it, that's what smoked meat is. It's meat that's been smoked and cured, and it's got a bit of a zesty taste to it. And it's uh, it's it's great to have a package of tums available with you when you're <laughs> when you're feasting on it. So, but it's not, well, it's oh, not that terrible. It's, it's pretty good. It's okay, now, now I got to ask you, what, what what about local cuisine? Um, uh, is there a go-to place uh, for maybe something that's a little bit more South Florida-esque in terms of uh, cuisine? A, 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 any place you'd recommend to the crowd, to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a restaurant my wife, Fran, and I like a lot that we sort of go to on special occasions. Uh, there's uh, There are two good ones. One in Miami called Il Gabbiano, which is a wonderful restaurant. Italian that is fantastic food. Italian, fantastic. Great Italian food, beautiful service, and uh, a lovely decor. And uh, there's a there's a, a terrific restaurant in in the Fort Lauderdale called Bistro Mezzaluna, which is a bistro with a bistro menu, which is very very good, which I would highly uh -oh. recommend to people going down here. 
It's off the 17th Street Causeway in uh, in Fort Lauderdale, and it's very okay, very good. Okay. Bistro Mezzaluna. I would recommend it. Interesting. Now, 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 I want to ask you a little bit about your your career. You're talking a little bit about your family. Um, so, right. uh, I, I, how how did you get into real estate? Did your family do real estate up in the uh, Quebec province, or did you no, study it? How exactly did that come around? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I had been married uh, to my wife Fran for I think a couple of years when her father and her uncle who had a small real estate company in Montreal, asked me mm-hmm. if I would be interested in joining the family business. And uh, so I decided, uh, why not take a chance on that? And I thought that might be interesting. Uh, although family businesses always have their own peculiarities that you need to deal with. But uh, what what uh, I did was decide to join the firm. And uh, it was based on, on the fact that the, my father-in-law and his brother, Benny Bezzo, Charles Bezzo, uh, uh, had had an option to buy this property in Washington, D.C., and said, mm-hmm. we have a contract to buy it. If we do close on it, we'd like you to join the company and start working there. Would you be interested? So I said, I guess I thought I might be. And, and so they did close on the deal. I did move to Washington, D.C. We lived there for with an infant son. My son was was uh, born in Montreal and we moved down there and uh, we lived there for a couple of years taking care of this 1500 unit project. And wow. from there we ended up we ended up in South Florida because some of the people from whom my father-in-law had bought this property in Washington DC owned some yeah. property in Miami Beach in Sunny okay. Isles called Plaza of the we made a project called Plaza of the Americas in the mid 70s with Cadillac Fairview which was uh, a very large publicly held Canadian real estate company owned by the Bronfman family of Seagram's fame. So we went on to do about eight or nine deals with uh, the uh, people at Cadillac Fairview, and then uh, ultimately they decided they wanted to get out of real estate. We ended up buying out those interests that we had joint interests with them together, and uh, we went on to, to complete the projects that we were in business with them in. They were all condo deals. Uh, in the South Florida area, mostly in the Miami Beach, Dade County. Uh, there was about eight or nine projects along Collins Avenue that we did uh, along the uh, intercoastal or along the ocean uh, during that period of time. So we were very busy in the mid-70s to the mid-90s uh, building a lot of high-rise condos. And uh, and then Related came along, and uh, and they sort of took over from us as the leader in that field. They did a lot of great work, and uh, we we continued to do uh, our own development uh, and uh, got into a little bit of commercial real estate as well. And then uh, I decided to leave the family business after about 27 years of having been in it and yep. uh, ended up doing some things on my own uh, in okay. Bay Harbor and... Uh, and a couple of other places, and uh, and now I'm doing mostly consulting and maybe a little bit of expert witness work, but uh, I'm not developing anymore. It's it's a young kids game right now. There are a lot of young successful uh, developers in in the South Florida area that are very substantial, particularly in the downtown Miami area that you write about a lot. I know, and. Uh, uh, basically, I'm, I'm basically, I would say, semi-retired. I'm happy to be that way. 
I, uh, I, I'm on faculty of the uh, LLM program in real property management at the University of Miami School of Law. And uh, I think I'll be going back to that this coming year again. It will be my 23rd, 24th year doing that. Wow. Uh, and uh, enjoy that. You're, you're involved and, with the uh, Ur Urban Land Institute, right? I'm, I'm looking at your resume, American Bar Association, uh, Urban Land Institute, University of Miami. Now, 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 what I want to ask you, I'm, again, I'm looking at your bio just to set the scene before we get into on the second segment, we're going to talk about the market conditions. But in, in looking at your bio, um, it says in 40 years you developed more than 7,000 units exceeding a, a value of a billion dollars. Right. That's, that's correct. Most of those were condo units. Although mm -hmm. there were some conversions involved in that as well, yeah, and that was over a period of uh, of like close to forty years, from the mid seventies to the late nineties, I would say. So that yep. was like about a thirty-year period, uh, and uh, since then, uh, the last project in which I was involved as an executive development. Uh, an executive <coughs> development officer of a of a company. We did Los Olas River House in uh, Fort Lauderdale, which, which is a beautiful project. A, a lot of right. people uh, yeah. look at that as one of the marquee projects in Fort, downtown Fort Lauderdale on the beach. Yeah, it was, and we, we wanted to give it a, a New York kind of flavor, which we did. It was it was sort of very urbanesque, New York style yep. kind of, maybe a little bit of Chicago style there. The architecture was very nice. It did yep. reasonably well, but it, it, we got caught in the in the back end of uh, 2007, 2008, when things started to go to hell. And yep. uh, the, the last third of the building took quite a while to sell out, but eventually it did. And uh, over time, it became successful. But the timing was not as ideal as it might have been had we started it a little bit earlier. But you never know about those things. But yep, uh, yep. we started off like a ball on fire, and then things seemed to fizzle out a little bit, and then it took a while to finish up the project. Now, now I want to ask you, um, Howard, generally speaking, um, if the audience is hearing about um, uh, 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 construction and the cost and what it costs to and, and what they're buying these units for, what, what kind of profit margin, generally speaking, does the developer going in think he or she's going to make and what does it blend out just over the course of time? Uh, what, 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 what have you seen? Because you were talking about the river house and how it started off like a ball of fire, and then you know you ran into market conditions right. and cyclical conditions. What, what, what kind of rule of thumb could you share with the audience about that? I say as a rule of thumb, when you're doing your pro formas and you're doing your market due diligence and you're looking up what costs are in the marketplace mm -hmm. and so forth, you're generally at a 30 to 35% margin uh, okay. profit. I mean, you've got to plan it that way because it's going to get eaten away by overruns and extras and other costs that you don't foresee. But yep. if you start off with with a margin of 20%, you're going to get killed because you're going to have to shave down from that gross margin percentage to something less than that. And that's when you can be very, very thin on your margin. So, I would say 30 to 35%. Uh, generally, a uh, rule of thumb is on the condo side, I, I would find that the the sales value of the units being sold would usually be double what the hard cost construction of the project is. 
And that's okay. that was sort of another rule of thumb. Uh, so so and, effectively, uh, effectively, Howard, if it costs $300 a foot to build, the developer's probably going to want to try to charge 600 a foot, generally speaking. Exactly. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, now and that, what, what if you – sorry. No, no, I was just going to say that's basically an average. That's that's what you hope for, yes. Yeah. What what what's the what's the most you've seen or heard about just in the circles that you run? Um what what's the most? What's what's the most obnoxious type of profit margin that you actually heard the developer try to um uh, achieve in South Florida on a condo? Yeah, I probably think it would probably be about 50%. Uh Okay. Then there's some prof there's, there's some buildings I'd be interested. I don't know what the numbers are for um uh, New building that was built and completed a few years ago in Bell Harbor. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the land was bought for uh, like about a million dollars a door. I mean, it was incredible. Yep. That's yeah, you're talking about Oceana. That I could think of. Uh, yep. I think it was it was called Oceana. I think it was the name of the project. Yeah. And uh, that project is magnificent. It's beautiful. The location is incredible. It's on the ocean, and uh, the land cost was a million dollars a unit. So you can imagine how expensive the rest of the project was in terms of the selling prices that they were hoping to achieve. But I think the sales value of that project was touted as being close to a billion dollars when it was all said and done. Wow, unbelievable! And and I guess I guess another rule of thumb, Howard, for um, for the audience when when they're looking at a condo development. How does it typically break down, generally speaking? What what proportion of the overall construction cost or development cost is going to go percentage-wise to land? What will go for the actual marketing and the architects? And then what actually goes for the you know the concrete and the workers and the rebar? Just right. just ballpark. Just ballpark. Well, I will tell you, in the old days, meaning yep. the late seventies, eighties, nineties. You would basically uh, get a piece of land on which you would want to build your condos based on the zoning that was permitted, height yep. restrictions and other zoning criteria that you had to abide by, et cetera. And generally, you would put the land in as your equity with the lender, the construction lender. So if I went okay. to Bank of America, I would say the land would be worth 20%. That would be with an appraised value an MAI appraisal of 20%, it would be free and clear. That would be the, the secured property that the bank would have a first mortgage on for a construction loan. And mm -hmm. so let's say 20%, 25%, as, as, as time has gone on, the land cost has gotten higher. But in those days, it would be roughly around 20%, maybe 25 in some cases. The, the, the construction cost of the whole project would be uh, the bricks and sticks. Well, when we did, let me give you, I'm trying to go by my memory, but in the case of Los Olos River House, I believe our construction costs were uh, hard cost construction that you mentioned, the hard cost, meaning the bricks and mortar of the project, including the parking and, and all the amenities and so forth, was roughly $175 a square foot of saleable property. So, okay. So uh, that that was that was in those, and that was the project that got finished in 2005, I believe, it was the last year that we sold units there. So okay. uh, that was gosh, 15 years ago. My God, it goes so quickly. 
Uh, <laughs> the soft parts are usually about 20%. So you've got land at 20, you've got soft costs at 20, and you've got hard cost construction at 50 to 60%. I'm not sure if that's still the rule of thumb today, but yep. uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it were close to that. Now, 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 generally speaking, again, just to give the audience like an education aspect, generally speaking, um, when, when you were looking in and going ahead and building some of these 7,000 units you were involved with, you obviously wanted to buy the land cheap because if you bought it cheap, that means it was a lower proportion uh, effectively of uh, what your expense Correct. would be versus how, how much you could sell it for. Now, did you typically reflect a cheaper land cost? Did that, did that turn into a lower price? in terms of what you were selling to the individual buyer, or is that simply added profit for you because you were selling at market value, if that makes sense? It does make sense, and the answer to your question is we were selling at market value. So to the okay. extent we were astute buyers and were able to buy a property uh, at a good price, uh, you can never steal a property, but if you bought it at a reasonable price, at a fair price, mm -hmm. where you mm -hmm. can make these profits, on on land and and it, where it would represent something like 20 to 25 percent of your total construction development costs, then yep. uh, then that would make a lot of sense and that would be fairly typical. So that that's what we would do typically. And today, my sense is that the land cost is going to be higher than 20 percent in almost all cases, especially uh, you look at some of the projects that Related has been doing. Uh, I mean, everything they touch seems to turn to gold. I'm sure that the buying power that they have is so enormous that they represent a likely candidate to close, and they have a lot of buying leverage and moral suasion attached to their offers that yep. uh, allow them to buy land in at a very good price. Got it, got it. Now, now, Howard, a couple, and I want to get into related in phase two and other developers in, in segment two, but before we move on to there, just, just some other basics for the audience. Um, generally sure. speaking, do, do developers like to build parking and, and, and why not? If it's not, if the answer is no. Well, you, you don't, I mean, the, the problem is, is unlike New York parking, you don't get any extra, any extra value for it or any extra income. If you're doing three bedrooms, you've got to provide two, two parking spots. And for some two bedrooms in the den, you might have to provide two parking spots for each of those types of apartments as well. So uh, it's something that we're just burdened with. It's part of the cost of doing the deal. There have been some robotic construction of parking spaces, which have had some technical <laughs> difficulties, which I'm yeah, sure you're aware technical. of. Yeah, I would say technical. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. <laughs> which uh, which don't, don't really work out very well. But uh, most of the time, you, the idea is to try and uh, – Try and get as deep as you can without hitting the water table, but you've got to use a <laughs> uh, a well point system and other systems of drainage when you get into the foundation of these large projects, these large high rises to drain the water as you're building the the foundation of the building. You got to keep draining the water out out of that out of that mobilized site so that you don't have interference with the construction of the building. But so it's not, yep. you don't really have a choice. You've got to provide parking. It's a, ne it's a necessary evil. And uh, the idea is to uh, meet the code and build a certain number of uh, handicapped spaces that you're required to do. And, yep. and uh, 
And in the old days, you used to be the parking requirements were based on the type of units you had or the total number of units you had. But today, it's another restriction that you've got to factor into the development of your property. So when you're looking to get a project approved and you're doing your due diligence and you're going to the city and you're looking at what the zoning requirements are, what the parking requirements are, you're looking at parking very carefully because it's an added cost. You don't get additional income from it like you would maybe in a rental building. And even in a rental building, you may not get that much money because the cost mm -hmm. of a parking space is roughly structured parking, not including the land, but the actual structure is probably in the area of about $25,000 in space, uh, maybe a little wow. bit higher than that today. So that's pretty so, so generally speaking. Downtown. Yeah, so generally speaking, an audience, somebody in the audience, if they go in and they, and they buy a condo from a developer, chances are about 25 grand is, is, uh, of their purchase price is, is allocated probably towards parking. Yeah, that, that would be a fair number, absolutely, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, interesting. So, and, and with the whole Uber phenomenon, um, what, what would you envision? What are you hearing? Are governments going to start to become a little bit more lax on parking in South Florida, or do you think parking is – it's here to stay, and people and the buyer wants it. So you, as a developer, you're going to build it regardless of what the government says. You're going to build them enough adequate you're, parking. You're, you're basically going to build it because of the market demands. I mean, everyone's okay. going to want to have parking. If, if you've got a bigger use, I mean, the market generally requires that if you're building three-bedroom apartment condos, yep. you've got to provide for two parking spaces for that type of unit. A studio or a one-bedroom, you might be able to get away with one parking space. And a, yep. a two-bedroom, you might be able to get away with two, two spaces. There's also compact spaces and, and handicapped spaces, different categories of spaces that you've got to factor in to your development scheme. And that's usually information that the architect and your zoning engineers are able to determine, which is the optimal number of units of parking that you should build for your anticipated yeah. development. Okay, now Howard, l l last question I want to ask you before we take a commercial break um, is uh, parking to me sounds like a lost leader. It's something that you need to do. It's required, but it's not necessarily a money maker. People would rather not do it, but it, but it's necessary in order to do a sale. What about boat slips? You did you did a very famous project in Miami Beach and South Beach called Sunset Harbor. Um, uh, right. There's a marina there. Um, uh, are, are boat slips, are they lucrative from a developer perspective? Or, again, is it something necessary in order to get a higher price when you're selling the condo? That's a really good question, Peter. Uh, in in the sense, uh, with using Sunset Harbor as an example, yep. uh, and it took me two years to get permits to be able to build the marina and to, to obtain a uh, – a subterranean lease from the state of Florida with the Department of Natural Resources, DNR. Uh, that must have been some effort. <laughs> very, oh yeah, that was, that was that was the most complicated project I had ever done. And uh, it was very difficult, but we got it done and worked hard at it. And uh, I'll tell you a cute little anecdotal story. Uh, after two years of hard work, day in, day out, doing all kinds of red tape, some history analysis, and looking up uh, all kinds of due diligence aspects of the development, the marina in particular. Uh, I go up to Tallahassee with my uh, engineer, Don Wisdom, who was helping me with the permits of the, uh, 
of the uh, marina uh, at Sunset Harbor. And so we, we get up to the hotel. We sleep there the night before the hearings that were going to be before the sex of cabinet and the, and the governor of the state of Florida uh, the following day. We go down and have breakfast in, in, in the coffee house, coffee shop or the restaurant. I pick up the Miami Herald, and it says Elton Gissendanner indicted for uh, bribery, I think it was. So the man <laughs> who was in charge of our permits was, was indicted. He was going off to jail. I think he ended up going to jail. But anyway, he was uh, he was indicted for from doing some nasty business and uh and in that same uh in that same uh newspaper in the off ed uh section there was uh a vote of non confidence by the Herald editorial staff saying this project should never go ahead. It's in terrible Whoa. For the environment. It was and they had never the Herald had never spoken to me, had never asked me any questions. I'd never tried to get any information. I had no idea how much we were doing to clean up the environment and so forth. But uh, it was it was a it was a hell raising day at the uh, at the Capitol building, I can tell you. But at the end of the day, by six o'clock that evening, we walked out of the uh, Capitol building with an approval by the cabinet and the state of Florida. Thank God. So we were able to build the marina. But getting back to your original question, the, it. it it doesn't. It, it actually helps indirectly to sell units because a marina and the beautiful yachts and sailboats that are in a marina are beautiful to look at. It's, it's a very, it's a very calming, beautiful thing to to see and to be part of your living environment. But mm-hmm. if people who uh, who people who have yachts are not necessarily buying the units because they have a boat that they want to dock there. In fact, many of the boat owners. They buy units or rent units if it's a rental apartment building in order to keep equipment and their staff there and their first main and their second main and people like that that are that are part of the the ownership process of of being a, a yacht owner but uh they don't they 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 help indirectly because they're just a beautiful amenity to uh to have and uh it doesn't hurt sales I'm sure there are some units that are sold because there was a marina there, but for the most part, it's not what you would think. People are not buying condos because of there's there's marina slips, uh, and you generally have to market them separately. In other words, they, you don't tie them in as as a uh, as a, as a leader or as an amenity that's attached to the to the unit that you're basically in business to sell, which is the condo unit. So most Got of the it. time. The, the the marina operates as its own entity. You sell it by the lineal foot, not the square foot. And mm-hmm. uh, if you're lucky, you'll get out for what it costs you. They don't make <laughs> them much, that much money, <laughs> and uh, they're they're kind of tough. They're kind of tough to operate, and it's hard to get good people to operate them. But we ran a fairly tight ship, and we were very lucky. We got uh, we we got uh, an EPA standard out outfalls. Uh, permission to do that. We 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 had all the amenities that voters want to have, but uh, it was nice to have, but we didn't use it to sell units very much. Howard, Howard, why, why don't we take a commercial break? Um, I know the audience is sitting there listening, going, "Holy shit, Peter was right. Uh, this guy just knows his stuff, and he's offering that context and that history." So um, right. I can't wait to hear what you have to say in uh, segment two. So 
We're going to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Kind of Vulture Podcast. I'm Peter Zalewski. That's Howard Shapiro. After this uh, commercial break, we're going to ask Howard to talk about what's going on currently in, in the, um, the software condo market, uh, what COVID means, and what he can sort of envision going forward. So stay tuned. We'll catch you on the other side. Don't buy a South Florida condo, discounted or distressed, before taking a Condo Vultures correction tour. CondoVultures.com offers weekly bus and walking tours that focus on educating buyers on the how-tos of identifying discounted condos, analyzing the opportunities, and purchasing units. Every tour attendee receives a list of all condo projects in a particular market, a market assessment handout, and unmatched expert analysis. For more information on the condo correction tours, please visit condovultures.eventbrite.com or call 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures Podcast. I'm Peter Zalewski. I have the pleasure of um, having a conversation with uh, a developer who's built over 7,000 units, some kind of valuation of about a billion dollars all over South Florida. He's also did some stuff in Washington, D.C., and apparently it looks like Atlanta. Howard, I didn't know you were doing things in Atlanta. What did you do up in Atlanta? We uh, we actually we didn't develop there. We bought property, rental property, which we managed, improved, and sold ultimately uh, to uh, to third parties. So we had three projects in Atlanta. So I used to go up to Atlanta, and another project that I did, which was far afield, was a 5,000 acre subdivision north of Los Angeles in California, which oh, wow. also gave gave me a few gray hairs as well. That was very difficult. <laughs> But but it was beautiful land. It was beautiful country, and uh, it was a very interesting project. Turned out to be quite successful. We it was just now, a now land I, subdivision. Yeah, I I, I want to ask you about that. So um, uh, you, your resume and your portfolio is primarily condos. You guys did do you were involved with some rentals. What what why not more rentals? Is it too long of a play? Is the money too low or? Are you just a condo guy and you like everything that's involved with it, the lifestyle, the gunslinger mentality where you can make it rich or you can uh, have to work with a bank or work out with the bank? What, 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 why condos rather than rentals? That's another very good question. Uh, it's a matter <laughs> of seeing your, return, seeing your return more quickly than you would from a rental. Uh, not that there was anything bad with rentals. I mean, there's a very few of them that really got built en masse, like they are yep. being built in the last in the last. 10 years, we've had thousands of rentals being built in South Florida. Um, but it was primarily because you would see your profit more quickly. You would, and you'd be out, you know, you and you end up not having to maintain and operate and, and, and maintenance the project if it's a rental project, yep. like you would if it was a rental project. So it, it was just, uh, and the, the concept of doing a condominium was also very interesting and very new, coming from Canada. There were condos there, but not nowhere near what there was in Florida. It was it was very much a, a new uh, ed use for bricks and bricks and sticks in in Canada, uh, mostly yeah. in Toronto, where you've got a city that's like Chicago with a lot of high rises, and New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Montreal did not have condos very much. It was mostly rentals. But uh, but to answer your question, to go back to it. It was because you could get your profit out more quickly. And it was also because our partner, Cadillac Fairview, which was run by the Bronfen family, were interested yep. in taking that experience with condos from Toronto down to South Florida and building up an inventory of, of, of condo development and, uh, again, 
they're a public company, so they were very much uh, balance sheet oriented and wanted to, you know, uh, be concerned with the, the share price on the Canadian stock exchange, and so they they were a willing partner to want to do condos rather than rentals as well. So that was an influence on us as well. And in, in, in terms of in terms of exit strategy, I guess with a rental, um, um, and I'm just going to throw it out there and, and correct me or, or fill in the blanks. But generally speaking, if you're building a rental, you're probably going to be in it for multiple years. So you're going to make money when yes. you exit, when you sell it, and then you're making you're making a return along the way. Is, is that kind of how it works with a lot of these real estate investment trusts? That's, or that's exactly how it works. You're making a return along the way, and ultimately, yep. there's two ways to exit. One is to sell the property. Uh, at at, uh, at a stabilized, what we call a stabilized basis, which means, let's say that uh, you're doing a, a building of uh, 300 units, so you'd have, let's you know, say, 90%, 270 or 280 units already rented out. It would be stabilized, yep. which would mean you just have the normal market vacancy of four or five or six, six percent, and mm -hmm. uh, then you would sell it as an entire project. Uh, so that. That and, was, uh, and that typically took how long, Howard? Pardon me, Howard. I was going to say, how long did it take to stabilize? Once you, once um, generally speaking, what what do you expect in the industry when uh, a new kind of tower comes online? You're looking at basically close to a year to rent out your building to full stabilization. Uh, Got it. Okay. For a building, let's say four, five hundred, three, four, five hundred units, things of that nature. Obviously, a smaller building would take much less time. The other exit strategy that you've got as a developer owner of a rental building uh, is you can refinance the project, take out cash tax-free, and that is another way in which you can cash out and uh, enact a, a uh, exit strategy for yourself. But generally, when you're thinking exit strategy, it's like you suggested, Peter, you're thinking about making money along the way and then selling the building for a a good profit at the end of the day. Yeah. And and, and a condo, um, I, I say generally, and I just want to see if you agree or disagree, but basically it's about five-year commitment of your life because you got to buy the dirt. you got to bring in the professional staff to design it, everything else. you got to get it approved. you got to pre-sell it. And then you got to build and actually build a building and then actually get the buyers who put their cash down to show up at the closing table. So it's five years a good um, uh, estimate. Five years is a very good estimate, especially for a high-rise condo. It took okay. I'll give you an example for Los Olas River House. Yeah, we we did that with Suffolk Construction as a general contractor. They did okay. a reasonably good job for us. Uh, it's never perfect, but uh, neither is the developer perfect. So we we got along well with them. They did a good job for us, and uh, and uh, the only thing that it took was a lot more time. Your five-year estimate is right on. It took us 30, over 30 months just to build the building. So uh, that's almost three years, and you've got all of the the early development time, the zoning, the, the architecture, the design, the studying, the market surveying, all of those things that take time, and they, and they take longer than you would expect. And there's all kinds of things that can come up. There could be a strike. There could be a hurricane. There could be a, a pandemic. I mean, it's yep. just unbelievable. So, but the five years is, is basically the cycle for a, for a high-rise condo, yes. 
Okay, and for, for the audience, just to make it clear, so if a condo's got a five-year life cycle and then maybe a rental, say 300 units or so, how, how, how long do you think it takes the developer to exit that uh, type of situation? Is it the same five years because it's stable, the rents are stabilized, or do they go in thinking, okay, we're going to be in for 10 years or something, uh, you know, some, some arbitrary number? No, I, I, think, I think if you're doing a, uh, a uh, several hundred unit rental building, I think you're in it for uh, about the same period of time for five years from the time you identify a piece of land that you want to yep. acquire until you yep. acquire it, until you do the due diligence and the zoning and the architecture and, and the engineering and, and all of the and all and hire all of the professionals and, and so forth. You're in it for, for close to five years as well. The, the thing about the condo aspect of it in terms of timing is it'll be a five-year project out of your lifespan. For sure, it'll take that much period of time. But uh, at the end of the day, you can wrap it up more quickly because you're selling units and conveying title to individual people, so they own it and you're out of it. Once you've sold that last yes. unit, you have absolutely nothing to do with the project. Uh, you might still have a seat on the board of directors, but that's only a temporary thing. So but, uh, I think doing a, a multi-hundred uh, unit rental building would also be about a four or five-year project as well. Got it. But probably a, it could be different types of headaches, still headaches, but just different types. Different types. Well, yes, you've got uh, – your your financing arrangement is totally different. Uh, that that's that's a whole other lecture. But uh, basically, with the condos, you're 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 looking to your construction lender to give you all the money you need, other than mm -hmm. your equity in the land or other equity that they require. You've got them to provide all the funds that you need to build the building. Uh, the same thing happens with a, a rental property. But you need to have a permanent loan, a loan on standby that you've made arrangements for when you started the project so that when you are finished renting out the building and you're at, you're at a stabilized value for the property, uh, you can take out the construction loan by paying it off with a permanent loan that you've got on standby for which you pay a holding fee. So, got it. Uh, it, it the, the, a lot of the headaches are the same and a lot of them are different. The financing got it, got is it. very much different. Well, well, Howard, one of the things we're seeing this particular real estate cycle, which began in say 2011 when you had the, um, you know, launch of 23 Biscayne Bay, it was the first new tower after the Great Recession. One of the things we've seen right. is um, we, we 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 put up about 20,000 units in downtown Miami, which is comparable to what we did the previous cycle. The difference is about 10,000 of those or so were rentals versus 10 and 10,000 condos. So you got about a 50-50 right. split, but it's still the same number of doors, if you will. Right. Um, if you're a developer and you sell a condo and the market turns, that's not your worry. But if you're a real estate investment trust and you have hundreds, if not thousands of rental units and the market turns, how do you how do you stretch things out? What what, what happens? What has to happen? You have to dig into your pocket. You have to get better financing. What, yeah, what, you're um, you're, you're digging into your pocket and into the pocket of your investors is generally what you end up having to do. I mean, you just you run out of time. You know, uh, you just uh, it's it's just um, a fact of life that over over a period of time you're gonna you're gonna run out of time. You're gonna run out of money, 
uh, yep. or you're going to need additional funds to maintain the project. To get a, sometimes you'll need money just to complete the construction of it. You'll find that you've yep. got overruns and uh, that you've got change orders. And reminds me of an expression that Vince Lombardi came up with once, which was brilliant. He, he was so the, the, the former team. coach of the uh, Green Bay Packers NFL football team. Right. Yep. Right. That's right. He was like one of the winningest coaches in the in the in the world, and he was great. He says, "Listen, he was a very gruff character." He said, listen, I never lost a football game. I never lost a football game. I may have run out of time, but I never lost a football game. So (laughs) if you're in real estate, you can also run out of time, and uh, it could come back to pinch you in the tushy. But uh, you need to be prepared to to have costs covered because there are always large contingencies that should be built into a construction budget. I know I love to do that. The two areas that I like to have a lot of fat in is uh, interest, uh, the interest reserve for the to pay the bank for the funds that it's lending, it's lending me to yep. build the building, and the mm-hmm. uh, the other is a contingency, which allows me to switch excess funds in one category to another category where I need more funds. So uh, I might be able to switch from an electrical subcontract cost to uh, plumbing as an example, but uh, the money is, is, is the key and, and the, the, the lender that, that you're dealing with is, is, your, is your primary investor. They've got the most risk and lenders today are, are certainly risk averse. I mean, they generally always are, but in today's situation amid the, the, the COVID crisis, it's, uh, yep. It's it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Now, Although if you're a company like Related, you've got such strong borrowing power and corporate guarantees that you can probably get whatever financing you need for whatever projects you want to do. But for most people, uh, are not Related and are not as big as or as successful as Related and uh, and don't have the enjoy the reputation that Related does. But uh, it, it's a yeah. matter of of having enough time. It's it's not only the amount of money, but how long it could last. Like your like your question suggests, how long it can yeah. last now, is very important. Yeah, um, and and for the audience, the related group, they're the largest condo developer in Florida. Um, in South Florida, they represent about one out of every five condos that's actually built. They're a vertical uh, developer, and they have a loose affiliation with related companies out of New York, with Stephen Ross. Right. Just to let you know. Right. Yep. So, um, yeah, how we're going back. Go, going Go back to the rental, uh, going back to the rental. Yeah. So during the last, the previous real estate cycle when we had the Great Recession, let's call it 2003 to 2008, you had a bunch of condos yes. that got built and and buyers purchased them. They were stuck with them. So what they did is they rented them out and they said, you know what, screw it, we'll rent it out. We'll cover some of our maintenance fees, our property taxes. Maybe we can uh, uh, get a return or at least help us keep our, our, our heads above water, as the saying goes. This particular cycle, though, you have real estate investment trusts which own, like I say, ballpark 10,000 units, let's say, in downtown Miami of rentals. you got another 10,000 condos. So if you're a landlord of a condo and you're trying to rent it out, you're going up against a deep-pocketed real estate investment trust who at some times is offering three months of free rent to a tenant to move in. So how does that individual condo owner compete? He can't, basically. Because number one, the cost of a condo 
let me put it this way, there's nothing more costly in real estate than ending up with a different use for the property that you're developing compared to what you originally thought you were going to do. In fact, it strikes me as, as, as almost absurd, but there's a, uh, uh, I made a note of it, there's a uh, mall called the Oretown Mall, which is in Illinois, I think it's in a suburb of Chicago, where they're converting mm-hmm. the inside of the mall to apartments or condos. Can you believe that? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's called the Yorktown Mall. It's in Lombard, Illinois. And what they're doing is converting the inside. Into, I mean, I guess if you go into Saks, you can get all your furniture in one spot. But right. It does, it does, I just don't know how they would be able to. The cost of conversion must be outrageous. I mean, it just may, must. I mean, to have to meet all the zoning requirements, the parking, the fire, fire safing, all of those various things that you've got to do to to uh, make the uh, the mall habitable and and zone okay, zoned okay for that for that use. And to me, it just seems really ridiculous. But you may want to check that one out, Peter. It could be something interesting. interesting. Yeah, probably ULI will do an article on it. Yorktown Mall. Okay. All right. And and so so if you are a condo owner, so maybe somebody in the audience is they own a condo. Their plan was they're going to buy it. They're going to park their money. They wanted it in the United States. They were bringing it from wherever. They figured they'd rent it out in the meantime until they could sell it. Now they're going up against these real estate investment trusts, which have big signs hanging off the sides of their towers saying, we'll give you free rent. Come in, sign a lease today. Right. So what, what what kind of message do you have to, to both parties, the REITs as well as the individual condo owners stuck with a unit that they can't rent at a price that it's going to cover their monthly costs? Well, I think it's a fallacy to think that if you've got a condo and you're buying it to rent it out, that you can cover your maintenance, your real estate taxes, insurance, uh, upkeep, uh, dealing with tenants, repairs, things of that nature. It's not that easy to accomplish. I don't think that, that, that you can get much of a return by doing that. Uh, I think the trusts that have thousands of units in inventory uh, mm-hmm. are competing with the condos that uh, that uh, are really driven by individual unit owners who, who are trying to do the best they can with what they've got, but very often uh, trying to compete with uh, a, a real estate investment trust that's got thousands of units is going to be very difficult for the condo unit owner because the trust can operate these properties much more efficiently uh, and uh, much much less expensively than a bunch of unit owners that own condo units that are trying to rent them out. It's I would be I'd be surprised to find a lot of units that were condos that were rented out that turned out to be a good investment, meaning a return of like 20% or 15%. I don't think there were many of them in the bad old days that achieved that threshold uh, when they were in the marketplace. And and we went to a lot of Latin Americans that repatriated their money when uh, when they, after they had bought these units, they wanted to get out of these deals that they had. And I'm sure you had a lot of people that you know that, that wanted to get out of those condo deals and just get their money out and get deposits back and wouldn't close and couldn't close. Uh, so, uh, 
the the big the big risk for the condo unit owner is after he closes, he spent all his money buying the condo unit, and then what is he going to do with it? If he's not going to live in it himself, he's going to try and rent it out. I don't think that's a smart play. Well, plus you have to spend the money to build it out to make it livable. Anybody who doesn't know, because you're listening around the world, when you buy a condo typically brand new in South Florida, you have to lay the flooring. You have to paint the walls. You have to do the, the baseboards. Other than the, oh, the bathroom and right. parts of the kitchen, there's no flooring in place. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to do drapes. So, I mean, you know, you're a landlord of your own property, and that's uh, not a, it's not a pleasant thing to be. In my yeah, opinion, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, 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 Howard. One one of the things I like to look at um, uh, when I'm talking about rentals and condos, and and why am I making a big big deal about rentals? Because for for some people, a, a large number of people, they're going to turn around and they're going to rent these places, and they're going to try to use any kind of revenue that's generated to help them cover their costs. Because their ultimate end game is to sell the unit or to keep it, you know, for um, forever and basically just to, uh, just enjoy the appreciation. So when the rental right. market starts to go soft, that means you have you as an owner, you have to dig in your pocket, sort of keep it afloat. Yes, absolutely. If the market goes soft, you've got to be prepared to have more money put into the project to pay for expenses. It's either going to come out of your pocket, or it's going to come out of your investors' pockets, uh, and uh, you're going to go to your lender and say, "I need more money because it's costing me more to run this." If you've got a friendly lender and they feel that they're secured and they're and they're uh, under leveraged, then they might they might agree to to lend you another three quarters of a million dollars or a, or a, yeah. or a half a million dollars or whatever to be able to carry the project forward. But that will only be done if the bank feels that the amount of net income coming out of the project can sustain the additional debt load that the bank is putting mm-hmm. on the project. And, mm-hmm. and that's where mm-hmm. it gets tricky because some banks just won't do it. They won't they won't take on any additional risk by lending more money in, in a soft market. Um, you might have to cross-collateralize or cross-default your other properties. That's one of the problems of dealing with the same bank over and over again. They um, they uh, they like to have you cross defaulted on various projects that you might be doing with the same bank, and that could be a very big problem. So uh, cross defaulting is another issue that you got to deal with as a developer. Wow. So simply means I was just going to say that it means that for your audience, if you default, on, if you go to let's say Bank of America and you're doing four buildings with Bank of America. Yep. They'll probably want to cross default your loans, which means if you are in default on one of those loans, that means you're in mm-hmm. default on all of the loans, and they can pounce on you and and foreclose you on, on all four projects. I mean, that's an extreme example. That doesn't usually yep. happen. But, uh, yep. but cross defaulting is something that the banks look to do so that they can increase their uh, – they can lower their risk and increase their safety in lending money on – on multiple projects with the same borrower. Now, now, Howard, what, what, one last point on the rentals. Um, uh, the, the, the data that's out there is it tends to be incomplete because a lot of the real estate investment trusts, um, uh, if somebody's driving past a building, they see a building, a big sign saying for lease, chances are that's owned by a big corporation. It's not, um, it's not a bunch right. of individuals. 
So when you go into the multiple listing service, which is a database for realtors, it's not going to have those properties where the for lease sign is. Why? Because there's no commission paid. Anything in the multiple listing service is being put in there by a realtor. So the point being, realtor, um, residential rental information is critical because that's the fuel for investors who have a condo. But when you look at the rental data, you're not getting the full picture. You're only getting what where realtors involved. You're not getting what a, where a REIT or corporate owners involved. So what, what, what kind of chaos does that create in the market, especially somebody looking at the market and trying to make any kind of prediction about where the market's going based on the, the ability to rent? Right. Well, the, um, the ability to rent is another factor that the developer's got to to deal with, he's got to yep. price his uh, his units, meaning at least put a lease cost on his units that are market acceptable. Uh, yep. And uh, and if he's he doesn't do up. that, it's, yep. it's like overpricing his condos. If you over the market, never lies, Peter. If, if you're priced yep. if you're priced too low, you're going to sell too quickly. If you're priced too high, you're not going to sell at all. So you've really got to know what you're doing. And hedge against uh, some of these competitive uh, projects, like condos competing with with a real estate investment trusts and vice versa. But uh, yeah. I think most of the time, uh, the uh, the the renter, the, the rental units which are run and owned by a real estate investment trust, are going to be operated more efficiently, and and yep. uh, and the trust is going to be in better shape. Than a, than a group of individual condo unit buyers. And that's a perfect segue for where, where I wanted to go next. So typically when people right. are looking at, it and, uh, at real estate investments, uh, if you're looking to buy a place that you're going to rent, chances are you want it to be smaller. You want it to be more efficient. Why? Because you're paying maintenance and property tax based on wasted space. So you don't want to waste any Absolutely. space. You want it tight and small. Versus a lot of the new condos that were built this cycle, Howard, these are massive uh, uh, properties. Right which are 1,000, uh, not 1,000, but 1,500, 2,500, 3,500 square feet with huge carrying costs. What what, what do you envision? Um, and first of all, was it a good idea to sell them? Was it a good idea to buy it? And what do you envision for all of these mega luxury units that are massive and effectively not rentable, you know, where, the, where a landlord can cover their costs? What, what, what's your takeaway of that? My takeaway on that is that they're not going to be rented. They're too big to be rented. They're too costly to be rented. And those that were built, I'm sure some developers would be banging themselves on the head saying, I wish I would have made these units smaller. It would have cost me less <laughs> less money. You know? But if you're building if you're building a, a two bedroom uh, two and a half bath apartment that's two thousand feet, I mean that's like that's like a townhouse size. I mean it's there the uh the the cost of building that and maintaining that uh, is is going to going to be excessive. Don't forget you've got maintenance fees to the condo association to pay for, which you as yep. a developer are responsible for paying your fair share for unclosed units. So that's a cost that you've got to figure in, figure into your development costs. What is it going to cost me while I'm holding these units and I'm not able to rent or sell them? It's going to cost a fortune. Uh, so I, I would I would be very wary. I mean, I would not want to be holding a lot of large condo units. There's got to be a market. I mean, where's the market going to come from to pay for those 
you know, million-dollar units and plus. Uh, I know in Sunny Isles, there's a ton of those units that are that are developed that are large units. I guess the developers just felt, you know, it's almost like a gut instinct. You just think uh-huh. that the market is, is going to be accepted, accepting of large units, and you sort of think that's a good idea, and you go ahead, and you say to yourself, you rationalize as a developer. Well, let's say yeah. if I add another three or 400 square feet, I can add more flexibility to the union, and it's not, it's not going to cost the unit that much more. But it does cost yes. that much more because you've got more structure. The columns are thicker. There's more of yep. them. You, you know, your foundation can be built more more expensively and so forth. So I don't think it's a good bet to buy a condo unit unless you're a, uh, that's big, unless you're a wealthy buyer and you need the space and you want the space and you can afford the space. Otherwise, you're better off going to a rental of, a, of an apartment, which is going to be smaller to begin with, and that's going to yeah, make yeah, more yeah. sense. Uh, Howard, I want to take our our last commercial break, and then on the other side of the break, I want to ask you about a couple of different things. I want to ask you about Stark and Tux. I want to ask you about where the market's going in the future. How how does that sound? Does that work for you? That sounds – yeah, that's fine. Absolutely. Okay. You're listening to the Kind of Vultures podcast. I'm Peter Zalewski. That's Howard Shapiro. We're going to take a short commercial break. On the other side, we're going to ask Howard to uh, look into his crystal ball and give us some ideas as to what could be coming down the pipe for the condo market in South Florida based on where we are currently um, as a country, as a community, and I guess as a, as a world. So stay tuned. We'll catch you on the other side. Challenging times for real estate calls for experts that help you to navigate the new normal in the process of buying or selling property in South Florida. At CBR Realty, we listen carefully and advise based on stats, local knowledge, and experience. For more information, call us at 305-865-5859 or visit our website, cbrrealty.com. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures Podcast. I'm Peter Zalewski. I have the pleasure of having Howard Shapiro on for three segments. Uh, who's Howard? Howard built about, he was involved with building about 7,000 condos with a valuation some in the ballpark of about a billion dollars. Was doing it for 40 years. Right now, he is an expert witness, does a lot of that work. He also is on the faculty over at the University of Miami. He's involved with the Urban Land Institute. Basically, Howard's taking all of that knowledge, that insight, those relationships that he's uh, acquired over the years, and he's uh, put into good use to try to advance the, um, uh, I guess, the industry just in general. Howard, is that a good way to sort of uh, say it? You, you know, you're doing the expert witness yeah, work, absolutely. trying to um, bring insights. Absolutely, yes, yes. Now, now, the, uh, now, Howard, if somebody if if somebody ahead. wants to take one of your classes um, or one of the classes you're involved with teaching over at the University of Miami or or uh, you know weekend things, anything like that, can could can you give people an idea how they can get more of you? It's hard because the schools have rules against you know non non registered students sitting in in classes but uh okay uh, normally i mean it would it wouldn't bother me at all i'd be happy to have them in there but they would usually raise some political uh problems within the school bureaucracy so they don't Got usually it. do Got that it. but so, so, what, what so I, you're what, teaching what I have done... go ahead I, I was saying you're, you're teaching you're teaching undergrads you're teaching grad students. Um, can somebody sign up for one course at the University of Miami? Basically, what I do is I, I work with the, the current professors of current courses. I also 
sometimes take over a lecture and and will take one of my projects and make a lecture out of that and, and go through all of the pluses and minuses, the, the good things, the mistakes, and everything else. But basically, I'm there to help them understand the world of real real property development to complement what they're learning theoretically in the classroom. So yeah. I, I might be there one day talking about Sunset Harbor, like what I went through to get the lease for the uh, <laughs> for the subterranean lease for the for the marina, or uh, uh, other projects where I had other problems and difficulties and so forth. Sometimes with zoning, sometimes with the city. We did a very interesting project called the Course of South Beach in South Beach that also had a very unusual flavor to it. And uh, that, that's the thing that's beautiful about real estate. You can do different things, and every time you take on a new project, there's a whole new set of problems and, uh, and events that you've got to plan for and participate in in order to be successful. So you, you can't really apply every lesson that you've learned to every project but you've got to be open-minded and be, be flexible and be ready to, to change horses in midstream, as they say, in order to yep. be able to take advantage of the market. Okay. Now, now, now Howard, talk, I want to talk to you about Starkitects, but I want to build it in such a way where the audience can sort of follow um, and so I can right. follow. Um, generally right. speaking, let's, let, let's, let's call it a 300-unit condo and let's say downtown Miami. Generally speaking, right. what, what is what is it going to cost a developer per square foot to build? Is that like three hundred bucks a foot, three fifty a foot, four hundred, two fifty yeah, a foot? Say, what, what, what would you say? I'd say we're in the range of three hundred bucks a foot. Today. Okay. Uh, um, so it's been a so while three, since I priced out a project, but I would say yep. it would be closer to three hundred than two hundred. That's for sure. Okay. All right, so we'll we'll, we'll say three just for just for conversation's sake, just for conversation's sake. So in theory, a developer's probably trying to sell that three hundred dollar a foot building, probably for five or six hundred a foot. Is that fair? That's fair. Yes. Okay. Now, now um, I am of the camp, and I like to say that a condo is a commodity. It's no different than gasoline. It's no different than uh, pork bellies. It's no different than corn, coffee, anything like that. Developers are very proud of what they build, and, and granted, they, they create a lifestyle, but at the end of the day, it's basically, like you said, bricks and sticks. Is do, right. w- w- Would you at least give me the general idea? You don't have to agree with me, but, but is that a ballpark way to look at it? Uh, that's, a, that's a good way to look at it, absolutely. Okay. It is now, a commodity. Now, what, I mean, no, go ahead. What, what we've seen occur is last real estate cycle, again, 3 to 10, we we start to see some name brands attached to condos. We had uh, you know the Trump brands. Uh, we had some other right. brands uh, that were being thrown on there. Now now this current cycle, um, we we had some actual uh, 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 designer brands that have nothing to do with condos attached to it. Whether it had to do with right. Aston Martin, whether it had to do with Armani, whether it had to do with any of these right. other names, and and these names buildings they're, they tend to go for north of a thousand dollars a foot. Now, it, right. it, is it safe, is it safe to say that the construction cost is still about the same? Maybe there's a little bit more because they're using something unique, but the land cost is probably more. But 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 jacking up the price with branding of an Armani, let's just say, and I'm not picking on them. 
is that effectively a way to add more value and put more money in the developer's pockets um, uh, on the sales side? I don't think so. That's my opinion. I, I, okay. Maybe if I were looking for a condominium, yep. I would not necessarily be looking more favorably at a condo that was a brand name to it, like a Yves Saint Laurent or Armani or something like of that nature. Uh, yep. I, I, I mean, the the extra cost of the developer is the licensing fee and uh, mm-hmm. some of the additional marketing costs that the developer incurs, co-marketing with the with the brand, uh, reception, um, different types of media advertising that you'd have to uh, undertake in order to be consistent with the image that you want to project. Yep. But I don't I don't know that that I would uh, ever buy a unit only because it's got one of those brands to it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think, I think no, I'd, no. Rather, I'd rather look at who the developer is and the, and the builder and, and make my yep. decision based on that, that quality. Now, 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 now the, that, let's call, let's call it the name brand condos. Those name brand condos, um, um, they, they obviously charge a premium. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think the profit margin is the same for a name brand condo versus a you know a, just a, a a commodity type of condo? Generally speaking, so I, I, I percentage wise, the price of a branded condo is going to be higher. It's, it's yep. going to be an excuse to charge more money for that unit okay. into the marketplace. Uh, I don't know what the percent. If I had to guess, maybe maybe. 10% more. I'm not even sure if that's correct. I'm guessing yep. with respect to that okay. at the moment. But um, but I don't think I don't think you see a swarm of people knocking down the doors because it's an Armani building or an Aston Martin building or something of yep. that nature. Uh, it'd be interesting to study to see how the sales of those branded buildings have occurred uh, and uh, whether or not the developer would admit to it to have <laughs> yeah maybe maybe they would not want to do that again it, it can be a pain in yeah. the ass as well because there's all kinds of criteria you've got to meet and so forth so i'm, I'm mm-hmm. not sure mm-hmm. for me personally it was no big deal but for other people i guess it might might have a certain cachet to it but not not for me well well howard I um last I, I wouldn't do a condo that had a uh and a niche uh, brand to it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just, uh, I just don't see the value there. Got it. So, so w- one last point about that um, is during the previous real estate cycle, there was a project built that was called Canyon Ranch. It was a branding, a licensing arrangement that was provided yes. by a, um, uh, a wellness type of resort in Arizona, as well as upstate New York that brought it to Miami right. Beach. At the end of the day, uh, because of some issues, um, a bankruptcy court basically terminated that licensing agreement, which is what the uh, the, the new owner um, uh, uh, sought out and was able to receive from a bankruptcy judge. And as a result of that, the licensing uh, name, it disappeared. So overnight, you went from a project that was known as the Canyon Ranch to something suddenly something that had a uh, completely different name up in the Miami Beach right. area. So. 
uh, is that to say is that safe to say that that you know that's a sign of what what potentially could happen and if you spend too much on a name brand it might not necessarily be for eternity yes as a matter of fact if you're if you're a unit owner and you're buying uh, the Carillon because it had uh, it had that particular brand to it what yep. you got to do is to read the condo docs very carefully because I'm not sure whether it says that that name is a name. Is, is it a 40-year license? Is it a 10-year license? Is it a 50-year mm-hmm. license? I mean, how long will uh, – if you think that you're getting value for your money because it's got a brand to it, how long will that brand be there? How long is it obligated to be there? Now, you can't, you can't trump a uh, bankruptcy court because the judge – is going to make whatever decision he or she wants to make with respect to yep. these various assets, including the name yep. brand itself and the licensing agreement and so forth. But uh, it, it, to me, it's not it's not a good value proposition. I just don't feel that comfortable with it. And uh, yeah. I wouldn't want to go through all the brain damage that you've got to go through. Imagine dealing with these egos like Tommy Hilfiger and Aston Martin <laughs> and Lee <laughs> And he's, I mean, you know, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I think it would be really difficult to uh, to deal with these. Uh, related has, has done that in some cases, but not many, I don't think. I think Ed, yep. Edgardo Di Fortuna has done more of it than uh, than Related has. Related just but, but, but Related was involved with, yeah, R- Related was involved with the Armani. There, uh, Armani Casa up in Sunny Isles Beach. So, but but that's but that's in, in cooperation, I think, with Desert Developments. So, but right, yeah, yes. yeah. Right. So yeah. so the other now all this leads me to the next part, and we're going to talk about uh, extreme confidence. Uh, Starkitects. I did a I moderated a panel discussion uh, probably about five years back or so with a panel of architects. And my first question in front of a crowd of probably two to 300 people to all the architects was, um, please tell me what organization has designated you as a architect and please tell me the criteria. And all of them right. told me that basically it was, it, basically it was just marketing. So can, can you talk a little bit about a architect and maybe what right. long-term uh, repercussions uh, it, it could have? And did you ever hire a architect? And how did you figure out uh, who his architect was? Uh, that's a very good series of questions. Number one, <laughs> I never, I never, I'm, I mean, there are star developers. I don't know if there are any star architects, but anyway, but I never <laughs> hired a star architect. Although I think that term and and that and that marketability is more applicable in cities like New York and Chicago maybe Los Angeles, where having a name brand architect uh, worldwide, like, and there's, um, I mean, they're they're from all over the world. They're from Europe now. They're from Asia uh, and so Mm -hmm. forth. But I, I, I think there's, there's some value in that, but I don't think a great deal of value. I don't, I don't look at it as being significantly different from having a star brand on a building as well as having a star architect design design the building. Um, Got it. Uh, I, I think uh, the, I, I was I was in a um, I was in a sales center a number of years ago. I forget which project it was, but the star architect had had a big 
couple of panels in the sales center identifying all the projects this architectural firm had done. It was very, very impressive. So in, in that sense, that may be somewhat of a value proposition for a potential buyer saying, well, my building was built by this architect. But I don't think it's a big factor. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, uh, it's a major factor in determining whether a, a, uh, an arc, whether a developer will do that. Sometimes it's a developer with a big ego who wants to rub shoulders with a world brand star architectural firm, and uh, uh, and, and that goes on. I think, but I think in places like New York, it's more of a reality than than down here. Although we've got some pretty darn good architects down here as well. Yeah. Now, now I, I've I've been told, and obviously I haven't built any towers. Um, uh, uh, and you've done a lot. I've been told there's effectively two ways to for an architect to design a tower. One is inside out, with the priority being on the resident. The other way is outside in, with the priority being on the crowd in terms of the efficiency, right. the use of the building, things like that. Is, is that a simplified way to sort of um, talk about how the differences in architects and designs and look? Yes, it, it, is. And, and it, is, it is a very uh, logical way of, of relating to the different classes of design criteria that are applied to, let's say, a high-rise condo or a high-rise rental property because mm -hmm. what happens is um, the the architects tend to design from the outside in. They, they're building monuments to themselves or to other people <laughs> and, and, they, and they don't stop to think about how particular should I be about the inside space. I mean, you got to know where your switches are going to be. you got to know where you're going to – placement of furniture is also a very important factor. So you've got to work yep. with an interior designer who can cooperate and work well with an architect so that you place the furniture. It's almost like staging the unit in a, in a design phase so that yes. you have an idea of how the unit is going to be lived in and worked in uh, by the people that are going to buy it and live in it. And so that, that, that's, that's, that's the difference between designing from the outside in and the inside out. You've got to spend a lot of attention to the inside out. Kitchen areas in particular are important, bathrooms. Um, bedrooms are just a matter of enough space and the electronics and things of that nature. But uh, at the end of the day, it has to be a blend of both disciplines, both the inside and the outside. Design discipline has got to, has got to permeate the entire building because if you don't, you're going to be stuck with with pe people will will say why is this wall here or why why yep. is this designed this way I would rather have it well and I, you I, I have a I have a story for you about that um, just just a short one uh, uh, somebody yeah. I know um, they 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 bought a condo and let's call it a star architect a star architect building and when they went into the master bedroom what they realized one of the one one of the beams one of the pylons was running on such an angle where um, in order to get to the bed, you could only access in the master bedroom, you could only access the bed on one side because you had this You're big kidding. beam. <laughs> that, that was right there. So the, so the interior designer was trying to figure wow. out what the hell to do because, you know, it, it, was, it was a lot of glass involved. So, you know, the, it looks beautiful from the street, but actually living in it, um, it might not necessarily uh, play out the way you know you would envision when you bought it off paper plans, you know, three to four years prior. Wow, 
That's amazing that they would put a yeah. beam of some sort or a structural yeah. element that would. Yeah, yep. That's. Uh, I guess now, the way now, is, uh, if the man and the wife are in the in the in the mood to do what they have to do, they've got to they've got to decide how to attack the beam. That's uh, that's quite a that's, that's quite an exercise. I don't know why that would ever get designed that way. That's really unusual. Yep. Well, well, again, again, a Starkitect design project that was really a, a landmark, uh, if you will. So now, 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 Howard, I want to, I want to ask you, um, I want you to make a couple, give us a couple, give us some insight about some things you expect coming down the pike with the market. But I do want to ask you one, one quick question before I get you to that. And I know we're coming to the end of it. Um, and you've been fantastic, but um, here, here's the question I want to know. When, whenever I, and, and I focus on data, I love the analytics. I love to roll up the sleeves and get in there. Whenever I walk into a sales center, salespeople is, uh, during the day with pre-construction, they always ask me what's going on in their building. And I get the sense that I know more about the sales in their building than they actually do. So I've sort of formed this opinion that the information that the salespeople are putting out on the street um, is based on what they know it to be. It doesn't necessarily reflect what the true picture is because the developer and the, and the marketing marks in a, in a project, they're probably withholding some information. So, so the, the salespeople aren't lying. They're just sharing uh, uh, truthfully the, what they know. It, am I completely crazy or, 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 or am I maybe onto something from a pre-construction no, sales I, I perspective? Think, I, uh, you're not completely crazy at all. I think uh, I think you're onto something. I think that uh, the uh, at the end of the day, the market doesn't lie. At the end of the day, if you are looking to buy a, a condominium, I think you're a more educated consumer these days than you would have been ten years ago. There's just too mm -hmm. much. There's too, there's too much choice out there. The, the 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 most important thing that a potential condo unit owner could do is to go see a lot of condos and to get educated, educate himself or herself into what mm -hmm. the various choices are, different types of buildings, different types of units, different amenities that are in these buildings and so forth. But uh, yep. I, I think I think that's that's really important. Uh, Rentals are not as important in that sense. Oh, you want to be comfortable and so forth. But in a condo, yep. you're buying it. You're making an investment, usually a very large one. And uh, so I think it's important for you to go out there and see everything that there is to see in the price ranges and locations that you think there that you might be interested in, and 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 choose that route. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be in a nicer space in a condo than in a rental apartment. It's going to be bigger. It's going to have more amenities driven into the building. Uh, and uh, this is one thing where the condo building might outshine the rental building. Although rentals are, are, are very much uh, amenity-driven amenity now these days as well. But uh, mm -hmm. you would go to a condo building, you've got these, these package rooms and these spas and, and these uh, various different bars and, and different and dining rooms, dining areas. It's a lot different. Uh, but you also got to think of how often you're going to use those spaces anyway. And very often you're going to yeah. get, you're going to fall in love with the spaces, but you're not going to really use them. So you, you want to be And you're going to pay for it. Yeah, you're going to pay for the maintenance. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. 
All right, Howard, I want I want you to I want you to pull out your crystal ball and I want you to sort of give it just give us some perspective of what's going on. You you you've been building since the uh 70s. You went through some situations, you know, you had the uh the oil situation back in the 70s. Right. Then in the 80s, what, what do we have in the 80s? We had the Berlin Wall coming down. Uh right. uh, the uh 2000s, you had the stock market crash. Uh we had September 11th. We had 9/11. Then we had the great recession. Yeah. Yep. We had 9/11, right? Yeah, 9/11. So, so th- this pandemic, and and obviously it's it's horrible. Everything it's doing is just miserable. It's terrible. I don't think anybody would deny that. But but in terms of impact, let's just say on condos, let's say real estate in South Florida, uh, is this the worst thing you've ever seen, or or how would you sort of put it in the context and compared to some of the other crises crises we've faced? You know, in the 80s, you had the you had the Venezuelan currency issue, which created problems on Brickell Avenue in downtown Miami. So, right. so where does the pandemic um, uh, play in, based on your opinion? I think it's at the top of the list of horribles. Uh, it, it, uh, banks are much more risk-nervous and risk-averse at the present time. I think mm-hmm. what's happened is, and what will continue to happen is, that for banks to lend money on construction projects, uh, instead of being at only 20% to 25% equity, the borrowers will probably have to have 35 or 40 or maybe even 50% equity, uh, meaning their own equity and investors' equity in the project uh, before mm-hmm. the banks will uh, will fund a construction loan. So the, the banks uh, are still, still have plenty of money available, like the big ones, uh, are are setting aside billions of dollars for losses that they're going to incur, uh, particularly in the commercial setting where shopping centers and stores and retail are dying, uh, and so no revenues coming into those businesses. But I, in, in terms of the condominium context, I, my sense is that we're kind of overbuilt right now. I think uh, I maybe read in one of your columns or. Uh, Somewhere else I read where there was a, a tremendous oversupply in certain key areas, uh, and that's why places like Boynton Beach and and yep. Delray and other places are, are are like sort of development areas of last resort where developers are choosing to go uh, further afield to find land to develop properties in areas mm-hmm. where they would otherwise be considered pioneering. So I think. I think the banks will continue to lend lend money. I think they'll continue to want more equity, and I think yep. the uh, equity partners are going to want a bigger slice of the pie in order for them to put up their hard-earned money because that equity money has got to be made available up front. You don't save it till yep. the end. It's got to be there yep. right at the beginning of the deal. Some banks it's got to stay in the bank that's going to be lending the the construction financing. So. Um, I, I just think it's still a matter of supply and demand. I think I think the virus uh, is is obviously a terrible thing to happen to the lending industry, to the development industry. Uh, it's the worst that I've ever seen it. See, I mean, uh, I guess it's probably in a tie for 2006 to 2008, Peter. I don't know if you feel the same okay. way, but those were terrible okay. days as well. Those were terrible days no. as well. Now, 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 Howard, there, there's been a lot said about um, 
single-family houses uh, really becoming popular. People want to have their own space, their dirt. Their, they don't right. want to be in a yep. building with 500 units, with 1.5 people per unit, all that type of stuff. Is this, is this a short-term um, based on everything you saw after September 11th when nobody wanted to get no high-rise? Or do you think that this is a societal shift where condominiums, high-density condominiums, these high-rises, 60, 70, we got, a, we got one that's north of 80 stories in downtown Miami, uh, a rental. Right. Is, is, that, is that the end of the high-rise, or do you think this is just something that people are going to have to adjust to and, um, and condos will be back in vogue sometime in the um, probably mid-future? I, I would say the condos will be back in vogue. Uh, I noticed that the uh, the building they say Tibor Hollow did an 80-story building downtown, I believe it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, the Panorama. Uh, yep. The Panorama. Yep. And there are other there are other high-rise buildings that are that are being structured or being planned or that are being announced. In any event, they're being announced, and uh, I I think the condos will come back in those buildings. Uh, uh, I just imagine what the cost would be. I, I, I'd be fascinated to see what Tibor's costs are for the uh, the Paramount building that he did. But uh, the structural aspects of a building like that have got to be phenomenally expensive because you've got such a tremendous mass of, of structure on top of your foundation that you've got to build uh, yeah. that... Um, that it would add a great deal of cost to a project, and therefore that would add to the cost of the unit, uh, the unit uh, cost for a condominium. But I, I don't what, think what, there'll be like a, a surge of units. So I think that, I think it'll come back, condos will come back, and uh, it'll still be a way of life. It'll be a societal choice that people will be making, uh, and uh, they'll be looking at various condo products in, in 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 not only like you mentioned the single family homes people are not not mm-hmm. want to have the support ticket fence they want to be in homes and have a backyard garden and so forth but uh i still think the florida is a condo area and i think it will continue to be in the future got it got it no no it just it makes me think i mean if you remember after september 11th um there was a building that was I, I think it was, I, can't, I don't know if they were building it on spec or not, but you had the Four Seasons Millennium on Brickell Avenue. They actually closed oh, yeah, the sales right. center because no nobody was coming in, and it was under construction right. like '03. Yes. And ultimately, it took them like ten years to sell it out uh, that yes. particular building. So, just as like a sign of how long it took the public to forget about September 11th and the, and the Twin Towers coming down and feeling safe, being vertical again. Right. Um, so, do, do, yes. could you see like a decade of a lost decade for condos based on the pandemic and living with that many people, or do you think it's probably going to be much shorter, assuming we can get a vaccine um, uh, to cure this? If, if I had to guess, I would say five years, not ten. Okay. I just think I, I just think it's a shorter term thing. I mean, the vaccine is going to make all the difference in the world, and uh, who knows when that'll be? But uh, we also need some leadership at the top of the scale for us yeah. to. I mean, we've got to just mandate people to do things that they've got to do and we're not doing that so i mean it's 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 very difficult uh you've got to i mean you can't socialize in, in business you can't you, you can't communicate as easily you can't have meetings mm-hmm. as easily everything is slowed down because of it so i think we've got another five years of this kind of uh 
push-pull type of uh, interference in the in the way of life of condominium and, and rental apartment developments going on. Yeah, well, I would say if, if there is one good thing to come of it, uh, uh, people like me have launched podcasts. <laughs> right, exactly. No, it's great. It's interesting. But it's, uh, it, there's uh, there's there's a lot that can be said. It's still Florida. It's still we still get a million people. Uh, we have like 20 million people living here in Florida now. So yeah, I think like, it's uh, north of 21 million. Yeah, I think 21 million is the latest, uh, the latest so, figure. Yep. So uh, you still got people wanting you know, to come down here and to live down here. So I think Florida is still a great place to live. Uh, Howard, one just one side question. Besides what else I, I want to ask you, um, uh, talking about that, twenty-one million people or so, um, Canada's got a nice relationship with South Florida. Uh, you're uh, born up there, you live down here. Can you just give people some perspective uh, about how and, and when that sort of began that the the South Florida Canada connection, if you will? It started in the uh, in the '60s, I think, more than any other period of time. I mean, okay. and then, uh, okay. people from the two areas in Canada where people were coming from to come down to the condo markets down here were Montreal in the province of Quebec and Toronto in the province of Ontario. Uh, people from Toronto would generally go to the west coast of Florida, like people from Chicago would normally go to the west coast of Florida. And people yep, from Quebec, right. the province yeah. of Quebec, the city of Montreal would come down to Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and that's the eastern part of Florida. And uh, I think it's continued through the 60s and 70s. I know during the 70s, we sold a lot of condos. There were like uh, a rash of units that were being, every day, every weekend in the Herald, there was like a very thick section of advertising, home and design section of the Miami Herald, uh, would advertise condos from here to, to Kalamazoo. It was just an amazing thing to see how many units were being developed and were competing with each other. And then, uh, of course, when we ran into the Great Depression, that basically cooled everything off. And uh, and part of that was the, the, the shrinkage of the Latin American community as well. They, didn't, they were starting to repatriate their money and get it back into Venezuela where they needed it to sustain their, their lifestyle and their businesses. And uh, that's where that market went. And I, I doubt that there's going to be much of a Latin American market this summer, which is when their their winter vacation is normally in the summertime, our summertime. Yep. So I, I don't know if you have any, any forward-looking thoughts about that, but I don't think there's going to be that many Latin Americans coming in from Latin America to uh, – to South Florida to buy condos. No, I think the latest stats I, sh I saw showed that the um, United States has the highest number of COVID-19 cases, followed by Brazil, followed by India, and yesterday the Bahamas, who basically relies on South Florida for their shopping and everything else, they just announced right. that people can't come from the United States to the Bahamas, which is what? How far is Bahamas, uh, Howard? 100 miles maybe uh, off the coast? Yeah, 90 miles or something like that. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I read in the yeah. Herald so. this morning that there's there's in in Florida there's 360,000 known cases. That's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. and yeah. The statewide yeah. uh, and the 5,000 deaths. I mean it's just 
it's just un, it's un, unbearable. It must have been what our great grandparents went uh, went through in 1918 with the Spanish flu. Yeah. I mean, unless you like that, I, but it's definitely having an impact on on the marketplace, and uh, it's impeding people from the liberty of being able to drive around, have meetings, socially interact with other people, going to sales offices, things of that nature, and uh, and 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 brokerages are like letting people go. They can't keep their brokers busy with enough inventory, and. Uh, yep. That that's another problem that exists in the marketplace as well. So, it's not it's not Howard, a very how, pretty sign. No, it's not. It's not. Um, hi, Howard, my my last question for you is, um, you, again, you're involved with seven thousand units, one billion dollar valuation. You you do consulting. You're an expert witness. You you really know the industry. Anything you would anticipate coming down the pike in terms of a design from a design perspective? as a result of the pandemic and as a result of the possibility of future pandemics when it comes to condo buildings. Can you see anything maybe being implemented that maybe people aren't thinking about right now, maybe something you picked up along the way or something you think would you know, would sort of uh, work to calm people down about living in a high-rise with 500 units and 750 people? Well, I think one of the things that's changing already and will continue to change is that the cost of maintaining these buildings in a septic state is going to go, continue to go up and up and up and up. In other words, these buildings are going to need more maintenance personnel, more maintenance products to clean them, to sterilize them, to uh, you know, to to deal with those types of issues on a, on a normal basis. You're going to see uh, the as long as the COVID is around, you're going to see maintenance men and women. Going around with Lysol cans and uh, and rubber gloves, and the cost of doing all that is going to increase their condo fees considerably, I'm sure. Um, and uh, you know, wherever there's Great common point. areas, they're they're gonna they're gonna have to really buckle down and get to these these uh, areas to sterilize them and to uh, to maintain them in a much more healthy way because right now. Uh, everywhere you go, you're afraid to touch anything. Uh, it's, it's terrible because you can't really enjoy what, I mean, when you think about let's go spend this weekend look at some condos, uh, it's not that easy to do. So a lot of sales no, centers not. may not be that accessible. Some may not even be open and so forth. But uh, I, I, Howard, could you, I, see, could you see less common areas? Could you see uh, a real shift away from providing all these over-the-top common areas to maybe less or a very minimal uh, uh, amount of space dedicated to the common area? No, I don't think so. I, I think I think common areas will continue to be an important ingredient. I mean, basically, okay. lobbies lobbies are, are the ego design aspect. Uh, okay. And you've got, you know, your spas and, and uh, dining areas and uh, gym, all like that. that, yep. Yeah, all that. In some form or fashion, that will continue, and it's even it's even fairly predominant in in rental apartments as well, because rentals at one time rentals started looking much better, and started looking like condos with what they were putting in them, and uh, yeah, I I think having I think having amenities in a rental building are as important to the renters as as they are in a condo building being important to the condo unit unit owners living in the building. So 
Uh, now they've got these package rooms, which is the latest thing that you see where because there's so much packaging, FedEx, so much is being sold in packages. They've got these special rooms that are being built that take up a lot of room where they uh, – Oh, for the Amazon deliveries and the cardboard and everything. Yep. Right. All that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's you've seen those as the lock they call them locker rooms, but they're basically uh, they're basically storage areas for these different packages that are coming in every day by the truckload. Howard, that was that was fantastic. I want to thank you. I know the audience is going to uh, appreciate that. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, how how, how can they reach you? Uh, they can they can uh, they can call me on my cell phone, which is nine five four. Two one four one zero six nine, and they can call me anytime on that day or night. I'm I'm usually up kind of late, and uh, <laughs> I also have a web I have a website that says that's Howard uh, www.howardn as in Nathan howardnshapiro.com. They could look me up on that website as well. And and if but they I want to reach out to you, you for the via... opportunity, please. No, sorry, go Howard, ahead. It, 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 it's my pleasure. Um, if somebody wants to reach out to you via text or via WhatsApp, um, can, can they do uh, that I as would, well? I would either text, text or email. I think email is probably the best. ShapiroH okay. at Comcast.net would be the best. ShapiroH so, so at Comcast.net. Yeah, ShapiroH, last name, first initial, S-H-A-P-I-R-O-H at comcast.net and and if anybody's out there looking to sue somebody and you need an expert witness i think howard shows you he's definitely your guy so uh, uh well give him a call if, we'll you're, see. if you're in litigation i'm, I'm happy to help <laughs> out any way i can but i thank you for the plug peter thank you very much i've really enjoyed this session with you and i appreciate the opportunity and would love to do it again so anytime that you want to do that just give me a call and i'm yours at any time there you go, audience. That's Howard Shapiro, uh, developer, consultant, educator. I'm Peter Zalewski. I'm your host. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Condo Vultures podcast. Next Tuesday, we're going to have a roundtable. We get bring together current and former journalists, talk about the uh, biggest headlines that have occurred in the last week and uh, affecting the soft water real estate market. And then the following Thursday, we're going to have another guest interview. I don't know if they'll be as big and as informative as Howard, but we're trying our best. So thanks for tuning in. And-